This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we discuss what history is, what it isn't, and give some disclaimers about our intentions with Session 5. Yeah. It'll be a short little conversation today, I think. But uh, important for me. And it might just be personal. Our listeners might not even care. But uh, this is important and an important disclaimer episode for me. So we left our last conversation not our last episode, before our intro and our capstone to session four, uh, before that, and that kind of that last content episode of Revelation in session four, we left that conversation finishing our study of the scriptures and had this nagging question, what happened? What happened between Revelation and where I sit today? Now that we're done with our study of the God-breathed text, We are entering a very sticky and dangerous realm of my own personal thoughts and opinions. I like a lot better when I can just talk about the scripture and talk about what the rabbis taught and lean on other people's authority. And now we're going to talk about history. And that's different. While my thoughts and opinions have certainly been at work in the previous discussions that we've had all throughout the study of the scriptures in 100 and almost 200 episodes, I have taken solace in the fact that we were working on a discussion centered around the life-giving biblical narrative. But this question is incredibly important, this what happened question. And as a Bible teacher who works with college students, I'm deeply convicted that if we don't wrestle with these questions, we have done a huge disservice to our study of the text. One of the things we talk about uh, here at Impact Campus Ministries is what we call message, mode, and milieu. What do you think about that word, Brent? Milieu. Have you ever heard that word before? I had never heard it before impact. Yeah. And you uh, heard it until one of, our, one of my friends and mentors and was my boss at the time. He was the president of impact before I was. His name is Bill Westfall. Uh, he, had, he was doing his uh, dissertation work. He was getting his doctorate in global missional leadership. And as he wrote his dissertation... He was using these terms, message, mode, and milieu. Now, I don't even want to talk about milieu. It's just a fun word to say. So, <laughs> well, that's a terrible tease. You, know, have to right? at least, you have to at least define it. Yeah, milieu, milieu is like, so the idea here is that you have a message. Not a message, but there is a message. There is the, we're going to actually talk about this part. There is the story of God, the story of God and his invitation to join. He's looking for partners. God's telling a story in the world, and he's looking for partners. That story didn't end in Revelation. We are still a part of that story today. Then there's the idea of mode, message mode, and milieu, message mode. Mode is the idea of just making sure that we're engaging our whole self. Not just learning, not just sitting and listening to a podcast, but hopefully this podcast enables you to go walk out your faith. Um, and, and, And really, it goes beyond that. Like Bill's point in his dissertation was that we as learners in our world, and we can't do this on a podcast, so we're limited here, but we learn best when you are engaging the whole self, when, you're, when your body and your heart and your mind are simultaneously, not independently, but simultaneously engaged in the learning process, you learn in a completely different and a more holistic way. Would you say that was true on the Bema trip, Brent? Yeah, absolutely. Your body's engaged? Completely. You're physically learning a lesson. You're not just walking. You are learning a lesson while you walk. Right. At least when I'm doing my job. And then and then your heart is engaged, right? Yeah, certainly. Uh, and, and then your mind is engaged. Right. You're learning facts. You're being convicted and provoked uh, emotionally. 
and your physical, all at the same time. And learning happens. And, and my life was radically changed in Israel because of that truth. So that's mode. And then there's milieu. And milieu is what we call intentional relationships with other people in the story. So there's the story that God is telling. We are a part of the story, but there are others in this story as well. And we want to make sure we have intentional relationships with other people in this great grand narrative. And not just of one brand or tribe or stripe, not just of one age demographic, or we need to have diverse relationships and a network of diverse relationships. So that's the idea of milieu. Milieu means a, a, an environment. Milieu is an, a network or an environment that you are a part of. That's what milieu means. So, so when we speak of message, let's go back to message. Message is the idea I want to actually bring up here. When we speak of message, the idea that we are trying to communicate is that we need to have an understanding of the whole story of God and his invitation to join that story. There is no way we can adequately address this invitation if we don't have an understanding of what happened in between the world of the Bible and the world that you and I traverse today, which is why, Brent, we took all of that time at every capstone of every session. We took all that time to do what? What did we do? To review, to, to remember where we came from. Right. And, and that review, we, we say at the beginning of every single one of those reviews, it's so critical and essential because we have to have an understanding of the big picture and its contents. Not just like a couple sentences, but we need to understand how the story has worked in the past, what's happened, what happened through all throughout the history of God's people, what happened with Jesus, what happened when we applied Jesus, what happened since then, to have that kind of an understanding, the whole story of God, the whole story of God and his invitation to join. Church history is a part of that. Now, before I even go any further, we're going to link in the show notes a blog post that I wrote back in 2018. Uh, during 2018, I did some rotating blog series, and one of those blog series was called the Making an Impact series, and we went through kind of all the key terms of impact campus ministries. What does disciple and discipleship mean? What does pursue, model, teach mean? What does message, mode, milieu? What do those things mean? And so one of the one of the articles that I, I wrote for that, one of the, the posts in that series, was the post on 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 message. And so you can we're going to link that. You can go read that on your own time. Uh, I enjoyed writing that whole series. You could actually use the sidebar there in my blog if you wanted to see the whole series. You go back to January of 2018 and just follow the series on through the year and and see what we did there. But anyway, so so that's message. Uh, message is important because we need to understand the whole story of God and how He's looking for partners. And so because of this, I want to wrap up our body of work here with session five. Uh, I, I want to. I want to engage this whole story of God, including the last chapter of the story. I want to engage that now. And it's important before we do that. Brent, there are three things I uh, I need to say, I need to get off my chest. I need to make sure that people understand. Uh, there are three things I want to point out. Number one, I am not a historian. I am not an expert in the field of church history, at least vocationally. Do I have a passion for history? Obviously. Have I given my whole life to it? Sure. Am I a part of a vetted academic institution that has given me a PhD? No. Um, Brent Billings, are you a are you a historian? Absolutely not. And and uh, I am shamefully uh, deficient in history. I did not care about history at all when I was in school, and and now today I'm like, ah, it's the one thing that I wish I would have spent all of my time on. Right. 
So I want to make sure that before we even get started, we acknowledge that together. Both both of us here as hosting this, we're not historians, we're not experts in the field of church history. Uh, have I studied church history considerably? Yes, as a part of my Bible college education, as a part of my personal study. Uh, even today, am I still studying church history? Yes, I am. Am I an expert? No, I, I'm not an expert at all. I am indebted to the work of real experts, some of whom I've been able to study with personally, and some I have only read from a distance. Uh, please do not quote me as a source in regard to church history. I am simply taking, uh, trying to take some of the things I have learned from others and think critically with all of you as listeners. Nothing more and also nothing less. So that's my, that's my first point. I'm not a historian. Number two, every historian, whether they are an expert or not, like myself, <laughs> no matter whether you're an expert or not, every historian tells a story. Every historian tells a story. There is simply no such thing as an unbiased rendering of history. Each one of us sees history through the lens of our own culture, language, experience, opinion, and conviction. I want you to know up front that I will be taking the parts of history that I believe tell the story in the most useful manner for our culture in this place and in this time. It is completely intentional and biased. But please do not ever believe anyone who doesn't affirm that very truth in their telling of history. All renderings of history have a story to tell, and all historians are storytellers. And we saw that uh, with Samuel and Kings uh, versus the Chronicles story. Yes, exactly. Because history for the Jews fell in which portion of Scripture, Brent? Uh, in, in the middle. Yeah, in which w- between Torah, prophets, and writings— which part of it did it fall in? Well, the Samuel and Kings was in Prophets. Prophets, absolutely. Chronicles was in writing. Writings. And you would just kind of think, if you just thought about it just briefly, you would want to say that all history kind of belongs where? The end. With the writings, right? It's just a writing. It's just a writing. And yet they understood that history was prophetic in nature, that when you tell the story of history, you are actually engaging in prophecy of a message. You are being a mouthpiece of what God wants us to understand in the way that you record history. So we should not run from that truth. We should embrace that truth. We should not, uh, we should actually, we should allow it to challenge us to think critically about our past. That's number two. So first one is I'm not a, I'm not a historian. And number two, every historian, whether you're a hack like me or just, um, or an expert, you're always telling a story. You're always telling, you always have an agenda. You always have a bias. Uh, intentional or not intentional, whether it was given to you or whether you've owned it, it it's true. Num- number three, my intent with this last, with session five, my intent with session five is not the history of the church, which like, wait, what? You just said we were going to journey through church history. Yes, we're going to journey through church history, but my intention is not to actually cover the history of the church. I will not even begin to deal adequately with any portion of church history in a comprehensive way. I will not be doing a study on the reformers or the desert fathers. I simply want to take a broad look at where we've been and how our Christian world has been shaped. This means I will be overgeneralizing all the time. It means I will try my best not to do this in a misleading or a disingenuous way, but I want to stay within the scope of my intentions here. And this is one this is something that's always kind of bothered me because when I when you study church history, 
Like you spend all this time studying the Bible, right? You study the Bible. You study, for us, we've spent almost 200 episodes studying the Bible, four sessions of the Baymaw podcast. We're so cranked up about the Bible. Something like 100 hours yeah, talking about it. Right. And then you start studying church history. And, and I feel like Christians like lose their mind in a similar way to like politics or, or revelation and eschatology. Like we all of a sudden just like go to whatever little pocket of church history that we love the most, whether it's the Reformation or the Anabaptists or the early church fathers. And we just like, we just want to like dive into there to find direction and meaning and purpose. But the direction, the meaning and the purpose was in the text. So I'm not going to like get lost in the Reformation. I'm not going to get lost in all the details. And there are people that are going to be church history buffs. They're going to be furious with me uh, after session five or during session five. And that's okay. I hope we can still remain friends and you don't stop listening to our podcast and we'll be done with session five very quickly. It'll be a very short session. But I just want you to know what my intentions are up front because some people are going to be like, but there's such good stuff in that portion of history. Yes. Yes. But our podcast wanted to focus on the text. And all we're doing now is trying to figure out what happened since the text, what happened to the text, what what happened. So we're wanting to be text-focused. Remember, we named this thing Bema because the Bema sat where, Brent? In the center of the synagogue, and you stand on it when you read the scriptures. That's right. And it, sat, it was in the center of the synagogue, and so we wanted to have a podcast that centered around. We wanted to have a discipleship program. We wanted to have a ministry where the thing that sat in the center is not our history. It's not our dogma. It's not our doctrine. It's the Bible. It's the scriptures. It's the text. That's what we want to center our conversation around. So we're not doing church history to do church history. We're doing church history to understand how to apply the text. I will not be making a diagram, uh, a master diagram with a map of all of the denominations throughout church history. <laughs> oh, baby. Uh, somebody, like, somebody's got to have done that. Sounds like but something Roger would do. I can't even like imagine the scale that that would be. Yeah, yeah that's right. There's a lot of denominations out there. There, you go. there is. There is. Tens of thousands, depending on who's doing the count. 33 to 38. I've even heard 46,000 denominations, depending on how you define it. All right. So in this regard, there are many, many great sources for church history. I'm going to recommend a couple books. There's a million others. There are a million others that are probably way better than my two recommendations. But like, let me recommend a couple that are from my—I have spent time with them. Okay, The first one is Constantine's Sword. Constantine's Sword by James Carroll. Um, I wouldn't say it's perfect. It's just a great way to interact with some thoughts centered around church history. Um, and some good critical thinking that you'll do if you read that. Uh, Bruce Shelley wrote a book, uh, Church History in Plain Language. Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. Uh, Brent, you've been spending some time with uh, old Bruce. I've been reading it, yes. Yeah? How, how's that journey been? It's substantial. It's, it's substantial? Uh, it's about 500 pages. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's so much information in there. And so much of it that I'm completely unfamiliar with. So it's... Um, it's been a tough read for me. I've been reading it very slowly, yeah. but I, at the same time, I feel like it's just barely touching on everything. Like it is an incredibly broad, but yet narrow. It's comprehensive. Comprehensive, but well, accessible. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, accessible. Sure. But that doesn't mean accessible as in like easy. It just right. means you can, you can follow along, take yeah. some work. Now, if you're like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a big, thick book. I'm going to get Constantine's sword. <laughs> 
don't do that. <laughs> Got the same sword is probably twice as big. Um, it's a huge uh, work, but both of them are great. They're a great way to get started. I, I've uh, I've read earlier. I actually didn't finish it, as is the case with many books in my life. Uh, but I I had a biography of William Tyndale, so like Ooh. several hundred pages about just the one guy, William Tyndale, who was. Um, translating the Bible into English back in the 1500s. Yeah. So, you know, 500 pages, you're not going to get that much detail. Yeah. But it will at least give you a, you know, if you can make it through the whole thing, it will give you a, a pretty good overview of what church history has been. Yeah, absolutely. And and there, uh, let me throw another one in there, Brent. Um, Gusto Gonzalez wrote a three-part, this is going to be even drier. <laughs> It's going to be an even harder read, but it's three pretty substantial volumes. I'm going to guess about 400 pages each. Um, he wrote a book, uh, a series, three-volume series called The History of Christian Thought. It's very much about Christian thought. It's not about, it's not about history at all. It's not, it's not going to go over the context. It's only going to go over how was Christian thought changing over the course of, so it's just about philosophy and theology and thought. That's all it is. Uh, the first volume was excellent, talking about just the initial, like, he's even going to talk about the five responses, the the, the Essenes, the the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees. He, he does a little bit of that. He does, it, it, it was great. Um, so that's another one. And then, and then we've talked about the Christian History Project before. Uh, it's impossible to link in our show notes because it's this massive multi-volume thing. We're not even sure if the if it ever got finally, we have a hard time finding the later volumes. It was supposed to be 12 volumes that went through all of church history. Um, I seem to lose track of them after about like volume five or six. So maybe the project actually fell apart at some point. I will add a link so you can at least see what it is and maybe yes. find it, but it, it has been difficult to, uh, to find. Yeah. It's been some of my favorite. The first three volumes are what I'm familiar with. Just beautiful. It's, it's It's visually beautiful. Um, very expensive though. So anyway, maybe, maybe utilize your library, uh, your university library and, and go from there. And on top of that, uh, because I am a, an avid podcast consumer myself, I, I do enjoy podcasts. And, uh, I, I came across this one called the fall of Rome. Uh, it's this guy, Patrick Wyman. He has a PhD in, um, in the, in the fall of Rome. His dissertation was on, uh, communication and, and travel in, in the Roman world, something like that. He's, uh, he spent about five years studying 3000 letters, figuring out who they were from and to, and what sort of, uh, what sort of dialogue, um, different parts of the Roman empire had, um, and how, how those things evolved over the course of Roman history. He doesn't speak a ton about Christianity. Uh, he has a couple of guests who come on and, uh, speak to that, but like the, the Roman, uh, ideal, the Roman world was a part of life for a huge portion of the world for a very long time, including the first five, six, seven hundred years of of, uh, of church history that we're going to be talking about. So it, it's pretty fascinating. Absolutely, without a doubt. And there are a ton of really great history podcasts. I'm not going to recommend any for a lot of reasons, but there are a ton of really good ones. A couple of really big, big names out there that do some really cool a history podcast. At least I've been told of it. I'm not an avid listener of any of them, but I have been told just everybody I talk to is like, have you heard this history podcast? There's some great resources out there. Uh, dig in. There are too many podcasts. <laughs> I have probably 1500 episodes on my phone in my, Ooh, in my backlog and I'm just never going to get through them. Oh, it's, man. 
it's terrible, but uh, I love podcasts. So yeah, yeah, I, I love making podcasts too, as you can probably tell at this point. We are a fan of the idea. All right, let's. Uh, I'm gonna wrap this thing up here. Uh, let's close with this idea. I, I pointed out earlier in our time together back in session four, uh, the early Christians seemed to believe that the return of Christ was imminent. Uh, like he was going to return within that generation. Like you see that in the scriptures, you see it in the writings of the early Christians. They thought Jesus was going to return within those like decades, not centuries, decades. Uh, so, so here's this question, were they wrong? And of course, everybody's going like, well, yeah, Marty, duh. I, I, I actually don't believe they were. I don't believe they were wrong. Uh, as I said earlier, I believe Jesus taught about a proper eschatology. And there were, there were two different kinds of eschatology. Brent, what, what was Jesus's favorite eschatology? What was, if we believe in Jesus, what was the right eschatology? Can you remember? The three-part eschatology. Right, because there was this two-part that there was this age and then the age to come, but there was a three-part. And just give me a, a one-sentence, two-sentence description of this three-part eschatology. So with the two-part, there's a, a hard break between the two parts. But with the three-part, you have your initial period of, of this age, and then the age to come begins, and it slowly fades in while this current age slowly fades out. And then eventually you do have that third part where it's just the age to come. Absolutely. Uh, that was Jesus's eschatology. He actually critiqued John the Baptist about his two-part eschatology. So I, I do not believe, because of that eschatology and how the eschatology works in Jewish thought, I do not believe there is a fixed date for Jesus's return. I don't believe there's a date set in the future for the day when Jesus returns. On the contrary, I believe God is inviting us to partner with him in restoring a broken world. And at some point, as this redemptive arc of history is bent closer and closer to the intent of God, God will eventually snap the last few pieces into place, maybe just as the apocalyptic prophets paint the picture, or maybe differently. But this understanding that I have, so I'll, I'll say that again, I don't believe the early, the early Christians thought that Jesus was going to come back within decades, years, not centuries. I don't think they were wrong because I don't think the, the date of Christ's return was fixed. And I think that the world, there was something happening in the world. This idea, by the way, is found in your scriptures. The idea runs congruent with the Jewish understanding that Peter uses in second, he has a, a portion in second Peter chapter three, where Peter has a passage where he says something that I've heard very few people teach on. It's cloaked in, it's rooted, not cloaked, it's rooted in a Pharisaical school of, of eschatology. And this is what he says in your inspired Bible. Okay, go ahead, go ahead and read us this, Brent. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Give me that first sentence one more time, Brent. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And speed its coming. There's something about engaging in the mitzvot. There's something about doing the good deeds. There's something about walking righteously. Later, the Jews would call this tikkun olam, tikkun olam, this idea of repairing the world. And uh, if there's a good Wikipedia article on tikkun olam, uh, we're going to link that in the show notes here. But this idea of we are engaged in, we are partnering in 
Tikkun Olam, the repairing of the world. Apparently, the day of God is not fixed. The day of God, the day of the Lord, is not fixed, but stands in relation to us. Our obedience somehow speeds up its coming. That's what Peter said. It's right there in the text. Peter says we speed its coming. We speed up its coming. And just as we saw in the end of our study of the New Testament, this commitment and radical obedience by the early believers was working. It was working. The most powerful empire in the world was crumbling. It was the dragon was going to be thrown into the fire. The beast, it was all being done away with. I don't believe they were wrong to think that the coming of Christ and a new heaven and a new earth prophesied by Isaiah, reannounced by Peter, Paul, and John. I don't think they were wrong to think that it was speedily approaching. But then something happened. We seem to lose the plot. And I want to look at that in session five. I want to look at what what that something might have been. And and so that will be my invitation at the end of this episode, to join me through the next 10 episodes or so as we begin to walk through the last 2,000 years, asking ourselves if Christ was right at the doorstep, what happened that led us to where we're at today? Those are my thoughts and my stage setting for session five. Brent? We're ready to get into AD 30 through whatever our first section is going to be next episode. 100 to 300. 100 to 300. That is our first date set. Makes sense. Domitian was right at the end of the first century. We're going to pick up right where we left off after Revelation. 100 to 300, you said? Yep. Excellent. Wonderful. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.